Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. You've seen these guys at all the horror shows and comic cons. Now you can get your very own inked up merch, the finest in embroidered horror and sci-fi themed merchandise. From Lost Boys to Street Trash, from Chopping Mall to Cobra Kai, Inked Up has the best in embroidered beanies, baseball caps, and patches. Now they've even got their own Jaws-inspired Amity Island board shorts. You gotta take a look, these things are cool. Visit their Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash inked up merch. Are you looking to get your own printed or embroidered merch? Inked Up has been in business for over 10 years. Whether you're looking for merch for your band or you need crew logo shirts and hats for your first film production, you need some sick looking perks for your Kickstarter project, Inked Up can accommodate your needs with their custom silkscreen printing and embroidery services. Visit inkedupmerch.com and tell them Jerry sent you. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. What's your favorite scary movie? This week on The Offering, we're talking all about the 1996 modern horror classic, Wes Craven's Scream. One of our supporters, Pickle Island, uh, over in Bayville, New York. My God, I just had some of their sweet and sour chip pickles. Oh, my God. These guys, this is unbelievable. Like, unbelievable pickles. Uh, definitely check them out. <laughs> I can't believe. I mean, that's probably some of the best pickles I've I've ever had. I'm I'm not even, even though they're a supporter, they're great people. Um, it's <laughs> when you got a good pickle, you got a good pickle. What can I say? Uh, the other day I went to the grocery store, a local chain called Stop and Shop over here in New York, and uh, they had buy one get one free watermelons. I was very excited because I, I love watermelons. And uh, there, there was like a fine print underneath, though. I was like, what, what is this all about? So the dude who was there stocking the produce, he says to me, he's like, yeah, it's buy one, get one free, but you got to have them slice it. And I was like, they're going to slice it. What do you mean? So he takes me over to this counter. I guess it's where the cafe was. It's post pandemic. So they repurposed the area. Now, what this dude does is they cut the fruit in front of you. And they use kind of like a, oh, those pickles are coming back up. It's delicious. Um, they use this kind of jigsaw cutting device that it, it's water. It's basically really strong currents of water. And that was that was the rub. That was the hook was that you get buy one, get one free, but they got to slice it for you. And I guess it's creating a job for that dude. But essentially what they're doing is this guy will cut your fruits, your vegetables, your produce, I mean, how fucking lazy have we gotten as a society? So dude's cool, and he, he cuts up these two watermelons, 
and puts them into these gigantic containers. Now, even when you have two watermelons, when you see it all cut up in front of you, I'm like, damn, that's a lot of watermelon. So I'm like, shit, what am I going to do with all this watermelon? So I was hanging out with this young lady and I was like, oh man, this is the move. This is the move. I'm going to bring out the watermelon. I'm going to say, you know, here's the watermelon. Get two forks. Just have at it. You know, it's very family style watermelon. (laughs) And, um, you know, so we're hanging out and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, I'm like, I got cookies, but I also have watermelon. And she's like, Oh, I'm full. And I'm like, bitch. <laughs> no, not like that. But I was like, oh, okay. So she didn't eat the watermelon. So now I got two gigantic things of watermelon. This played out much differently in my head. I, I thought it was going to be my move to seduction, you know, because that's, that's what women are looking for is juicy, ripe, sweet watermelon. So now I got two fucking gigantic boats of watermelon. What do I, what do, I do with all this watermelon? So I'm eating the watermelon. <laughs> I'm eating it. I'm just trying to like, oh, what am I going to do with it? You know? And, uh, I try to trick then everyone in my life into it. Like my friend Jeremy comes over and I'm like, Hey, Hey, you want some watermelon? And he's like, nah, no, I, I don't want watermelon. And we've been going through this. It's the middle of the summer, crazy heat wave. And I'm literally trying to get rid of this watermelon. So now I have a whole nother container. I haven't even finished the first container. Uh, I go over to uh, my landlady, very nice lady, and I'm like, hey, how, hey would you like some, would you, I have watermelon, do you want watermelon? And she's like, no, no, I don't want watermelon. Now, you would have thought that I went up to this woman and offered her chlamydia. You, th- This is what you would have thought. Like, I was like, hey, do you want this STD that's going to follow you around for the rest of your life? You know, like I'm asking her to, you know adopt a monkey or something like this is a terrible burden to put on her. So what I learned, (laughs) I guess the moral of the story is just because something is buy one, get one free doesn't mean you should get it. Okay. It's basically biting off more than you can chew, but I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me just drop it one more time. Pickle Island, Bayville, New York. These are some of the best pickles I've ever had. I've been around. Your boy's been around. I've been selling small pickles my whole life. Well, one pickle. Singular. Uh, Fantastic. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. We're going to have a lot of fun today, ladies and gentlemen. Good show. Big show. Get ready. Talking Wes Craven's 1996 modern classic, Scream. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jerry Hara, and this is The Offering, and on this week's Offering, we're talking all about the postmodern horror classic, the 1996 directed by Wes Craven, Scream. This is the one you want. I know a lot of people have been asking me and saying, Jerry, when are you going to do a Scream episode? And this is the one. Um, As I'm recording this right now, or as they say, at press time, right now, the Scream 5 film, it's already been made, already been shot. It is the year of our Lord, 2021. It is July uh, as we're recording this. And um, basically the the fifth Scream film has been made. So I felt that uh, what better time than now, what better place than here to begin covering these films. Um, And now we're starting obviously with the first one, but uh, 
there's been a weird energy around the Scream films. Uh, recently, I saw Fear Street, 1994, which uh, that was the Netflix series of films are doing, but but uh, that film in particular definitely relied heavily on the Scream films. Uh, very influenced. It wore its influences on its arm. But sometimes I feel like there's a strange confluence of events uh, in the air and in my little hemisphere of horror, it appears lately everyone's talking about Scream. So I said, fuck it. I got to do all the research. I got to go balls in and give you a dope episode about Scream. And that's essentially what I'm going to do. So I hope that you're comfortable. I hope that this week finds you well. I hope that everything in your life is, is going well. Everything, I hope it's all blessings. It's all good stuff from here on in for you. Not for me, for you. Fuck me. Who cares? You, you, I hope it all works out for you. I like you a lot. Okay. So I guess I have to preface this entire episode with a simple idea. And if anything, this right here is the offering and this is the takeaway. So listen carefully. The genius of Scream is that anyone can be the ghost face killer. Even you, you can quote me on that. That is the genius of Scream. It is that anyone can be the killer. Um, when you have a lot of films like, obviously, Nightmare on Elm Street, you have Freddy Krueger, you have Michael Myers, you have Jason Voorhees, that's the killer. In Scream, anybody can be the killer. And that is what makes the whole franchise work. So it makes the whole first film work. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. So, we're going to have to go back in our time machine because we're going to have to go back to December of 1996. It is the 20th five days before Christmas that the original Scream was released. So we'll go back to December 19th because that was the night that I got to see it. Uh, it was the Thursday before. It was a nine o'clock show. It was cold. I mean, it was cold. Literally, uh, there had been snowflakes. It was an overcast night, uh, Long Island, New York. So I'm with this girl. I'm thinking, you know, whatever. This is it gonna marry this girl right because that's that's how it works it's like the first time that a girl broke my heart but this is the beginning it's like one of our first or second dates like easily this is the beginning of it everything's all fucking good there was a, a movie theater it was the patchog multiplex uh over on the east end of long island and uh it was cold and i said to this girl i'm like hey and this is <laughs> people like you forget that like now you buy tickets online and, you, you know, whatever you do it on Fandango or you do it from your phone, you know, whatever you do, you're doing it from home and you're picking your seats. This was the days before that. OK, so you had to go to a box office. There was no ends, ifs or buts. You had to go to the box office. Um, there weren't a lot of people there initially. Um, this was the night before and it was a sneak preview the night before it dropped in order to kind of give people a taste. It's crazy because I've been thinking about this and it all comes back to me. Like I can see it in my mind's eye. 
like I was there back in 1996. And, uh, you know, we shuffled into the theater. Everybody's sitting there. And um, I knew it. And, and this is like, look, I've been wrong about a lot of fucking things in my life. But I knew this. I saw the scream. And I could tell you as I was watching it, I'm like, holy shit. Like, the energy of the audience and the film, okay? Uh, you could feel it. It was palpable. You could feel people were really responding to this. It was funny when it needed to be funny. It had thrills and chills when it needed to. It was firing on all cylinders with the audience that night. When it's the first time that an audience has seen a film and you, that they're really connecting with it, they're just, you know, it's, it's kind of like they're gasping, they're laughing, they're into it, they're reacting to it, and, and they're reacting to every beat as, as the director intended, as the writer intended. It's just boom, 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 and it's, it's rhythmic. We got out of that movie theater, and it was snowing out. And I was saying to this girl, I was like, yo, I'm like, is it just me or that film was amazing? It was. Scream was incredible. Uh, they always talk about it like you had to be there. You had to be there because seeing it the night before it came out was a big deal. Believe it or not, Scream didn't do that well when it first came out. In its first week of release, it only made $4 million, I think $4.3 million, and came in number four at the box office. That's right. Scream wasn't exactly a giant hit when it first came out. It took time to build to that. So we have to think back to 1996, okay? Because it seems, it seems like 20 billion lifetimes ago, but we need to kind of preface the situation as to what were the films of 1996? And more in particular, what were the horror films? What was the state of horror in 1996? Well, I lived through it. And I got to tell you, whew, it wasn't, <laughs> it had its moments, but let me put it this way. It was not all roses. I have a complete list here of the horror films in, in, that were released in theaters. Scream would be the last because it came out December 20th. And like, that was a ballsy move. Who opens a horror movie, uh, you know, five days before Christmas? That's ballsy. But it was also counter-programming because the film was released by Dimension. And uh, it was counter-programming to the family stuff. You know, that, that's kind of what you're always looking to do is in the marketplace, if you see an opportunity where you can counter-program, like, okay, there's a big family film out. Let's try to make an R-rated, uh, you know, like let's let's put in competition or contention with that film an R-rated thriller that maybe older folks would like, you know. So you try to look to see what's out there and what's coming out, and then see what the counterintuitive technique to respond to what's in the theater and what's being programmed. So opening a horror movie five days before Christmas, balls, just absolute, <laughs> absolute balls. Okay. On the Good, From Dusk Till Dawn. Hey, From Dusk Till Dawn is great. It's a classic. Love it. Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, George Clooney. We can go on and on. It's great. The Craft. Okay. Yeah, I like The Craft. I mean, you had to, again, you had to be there. Did you listen to the soundtrack? It was a good soundtrack. Uh, ooh, The Frighteners. The Frighteners wasn't bad. An early Peter Jackson effort. Nice and spooky, but guess what? A lot of people didn't see it. That's right. I mean, it's a good movie, but not enough people saw it. Uh, 
they were hoping that the Frighteners was going to be a much bigger deal than it was because I believe Jackson was signed on for like two more pictures. So, so was uh, Michael J. Fox. I'm thinking someone at Universal was like, wow, we had a Back to the Future trilogy. Why can't we have a Frighteners trilogy? It didn't work out. Bad Moon, the werewolf film. Uh, that was the dude from Three O'Clock High, isn't that? It's not a good movie. Hellraiser Bloodline. Ooh. Ooh. It's the last theatrical Hellraiser. It's the last theatrical Hellraiser before it becomes a direct-to-video film series put out by Dimension. Same company for Scream. Thinner. Ugh. The Dentist. Okay. It has its fans, but no. Amityville Dollhouse. Trilogy of Terror 2. Pinocchio's Revenge. Lawnmower Man 2. Beyond Cyberspace. So... And they considered Lawnmower Man 2 is considered to be a horror movie. It's science fiction, I know, but I guess maybe it's just, it's the only kind of sci-fi adjacent film. And they lost a ton of money on Lawnmower Man. Lawnmower Man was, Lawnmower Man, the first one was a success, but the second movie, this um, this Job's War or whatever the hell it was, Beyond Cyberspace, um, ooh, it's a disaster. Like they lost a lot of money. They lost, I want to say like between 80 and 90 million on marketing. And that's a lot of money because it's 1996 money. We're back in time. These movies are all terrible. Like ostensibly from dusk till dawn is the only real winner. Also a dimension film coming from them. Weinstein boys. we got to talk about it. Got to get it out of there. Look, Harvey Weinstein's a piece of shit. He's a deplorable, sick fuck, and he deserves, you know, whatever the law is going to throw at him. I don't want to say anything bad because I'm not trying to go to jail. You know how it is in the United States now. So that being said, um, his contribution is felt to cinema. Uh, you know, Miramax, how many Oscars did they win? You know, like I can't even I can't keep track of that. Um, how many people? that were so influential to my generation, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, Rob Zombie. This can go on and on. They, they, they really had much more of a, a bigger fingerprint, uh, especially on genre film, and especially me being a young person at the time. From Dusk Till Dawn, it's a fantastic film. The State of Horror. This is not good, though. This is not good, okay? There's not a lot out in cinemas. Um... The direct-to-video market kind of sucks. They hadn't figured that out. At this point, they had had the flop with uh, the last Halloween film. That's also a Dimension film. Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. After that, before they figured out to do H2O, they were quietly planning a Halloween film that was going to go direct-to-video. Everything is dead. Freddy's dead. Jason's dead. Uh, You ain't got nothing going on with Michael Myers. So all of your big horror villains are kind of in this cryostasis. They're asleep, if you will. Uh, look, I, I can't even tell you. There was not a lot in 1996 to go see. If you were a horror fan, if you were a genre fan, there just was not a lot to see in theaters that year. It, it sucked, all right? <laughs> I lived through it. I can tell you I was there. Um, it was a dark time if you were a horror fan. I mean, come on, Pinocchio's Revenge? Who fucking cares? Like, who who even saw that? And look, if you're a fan of the film, God bless. But I can tell you that Pinocchio's Revenge, it's 2021 as I'm recording this, was not the influential, not the influential, 
not the influential film that you thought it would be. All right, you know what I realized? I'm like, some words I'm just going to say wrong, so I'm just going to say I'm wrong. Fuck you, I don't care. Uh, 1996 was a crazy year because Scream was the last big release of the year, and it was the last horror release of the year. It was going to make an impact. But let's go before this, because I have to kind of start, have to go back a few years. Let's go back to 1990, all right? We're flashing back again, and this is going to be of great importance. I never knew this, but Ghostface and the murders are based on the Gainesville Ripper. Now, if you don't know who the Gainesville Ripper is, well, in 1990, five girls that were under the age of 20 were all brutally murdered in, in Gainesville, Florida. Um, basically, this guy, Danny Rowling, and it's, it's very interesting how this all played out and how much this trial and everything uh, influences Scream and informs Scream of where it's going to go. Danny Rowling killed all these women, killed a family in Louisiana, um, absolutely grisly murders, grisly murders where he... And, and, you know, it's like you see the stuff in Scream, and it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what this guy did. Uh, they found two girls murdered. He had sex with one of the girl's corpse, raped the other, uh, cut off one girl's head and had it facing the body. Really sick fuck. This guy was, was really deplorable. Um, one of the ways that they caught Danny Rowling was that he used uh, a tape recorder. And he would tape record uh, songs, poems, confessions about what he liked about the murder and how it went down. Like, it's bizarre. He was using this as a voice journal. It's 35 years old. White guy. It's always a white guy. Come on. Always a fucking white guy. It's a serial killer? Come on. Fuck you, kidding. Danny Rowling. Terrible, terrible dude. I mean, you, you can't make that shit up. But before they caught him, they found this other kid, okay? And we're not going to say his name because he was found innocent. Um, I don't think there's any reason to bring this up. You know, I'm sure he's still alive. And, and you know, you don't want to. This kid is in high school. And he confesses to doing the murders. And he's got, his face is scarred from when he was a kid. He, had a, he got attacked by a dog. So he looks like he's scarred up and he's admitting to these murders. They do a little bit of forensic psychology. What they find is they find semen, but the semen doesn't match the DNA of this young man. Well, it ends up that this kid who they who admitted to the crime didn't didn't actually do it. He was a, a paranoid schizophrenic that kind of used this as a cry for help or attention. And uh, really kind of a sad story about this young man. But at first, it was exciting because one by one, these young women were murdered. So the entire year of 1990 was the entire town of Gainesville, which voted one of the top five places to live in the United States in 1996. Uh, this beautiful, quiet Florida town. And it is caught in the grip of fear because someone is murdering young women. Um, it's upsetting, you know. It's upsetting, and the entire, the entire surrounding county is. Everybody is afraid. Everybody's scared 
because once they gave him the name of the Gainesville Ripper and the details came out at how violent the crimes were and he was targeting young women and his murder weapon of choice, a knife, very much so like the knife that Ghostface would use in the Scream films. Uh, he held this entire town in, under the grip of fear for almost an entire year. They eventually did catch him. Um, they found the confessions. Shockingly, he was in jail. That's right. They didn't find him out on the street prior to these murders uh, or after these murders. He had been sentenced because of a time that he committed armed robbery. So he was actually in prison once they started, like, you know, questioning him and whatnot. And the key to this trial is finding those tapes because the tapes give him a dead to rights. It's him admitting when he starts talking. Some, and, and it was very, very spooky. If you want to watch f uh, footage of Danny Rowling, it is terrifying. This guy is a nightmare. Um, there was a woman who was in love with him because there's always some fucking woman who's in love with a serial killer. And she's there. And he gets up during the middle of the trial and he starts singing her some country song. And I'm just like, you couldn't make this shit up. Like, this is perfect. Like, this, this is a movie right here. This is, you can't make this up. Um, on these tapes that they found, he would talk a lot about what was going on in his head. It's very much a, a vlog or a blog ahead of its time, you know? except he was confessing to murdering all these people. And there were things that he was happy about and just things that he was disappointed in. Ultimately, he was, Danny Rowling was sentenced to death by lethal injection in November of 1990, and he was put to death. And I agree with it because this guy was, was horrible. He murdered a whole family. It's a wife, child, husband, murdered these five young girls. And these girls were young. Two of the girls were 17 years old. You know, that's, it's just really upsetting. It took a long time for Gainesville to recover from this tragedy. Uh, but while it was going on, the media really got into it. This was one of those cases that was just too scary, too juicy, not to completely exploit. Hmm, kind of almost reminds you of, Keen reporter Gail Weathers. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Kevin Williamson, basically a kind of a failed actor, failed screenwriter. He's three months late on his rent. His car is about to get repossessed, and he's house sitting for a friend. So Kevin Williamson uh, basically decides, "Hey, I'm going to smoke a joint and I'm watching the news." He's watching the news. Gainesville Ripper, Gainesville Ripper. They start going into this one-hour special about Danny Rowling. And, uh, well, this was before they caught him. This was before they caught Danny Rowling, so this was kind of like when everybody was panicked. So this was all live footage. And in the early 90s, this was a new thing. This was a part of the new news cycle that it was going to be totally evasive. We were going to be on location at 9, 10 o'clock at night, still reporting, you know, outside with these big lights and these big cameras and terrible early 90s hair <laughs> one can only assume Kevin Williamson sitting there and he says man this is scary 
Like, this is kind of freaking me out right now. Maybe he's paranoid. Maybe he's high. Who knows? He realizes that he left the window open. So he closes the window. And he's so freaked out. And, and, you know, just by the whole thing with this Gainesville Ripper story, he calls a friend. So him and his friend, you know, they're joking around. He feels better talking to him. And he finally says to him, he's like, he's like, so what's your, what's your favorite horror movie? And they start going back and forth about the films that they loved. Kevin Williamson basically admits to being a Halloween fanboy. He, he, loves, he loves Halloween. So that's going to come into play later. Kevin Williamson decides, wait a second. I think I've got the genesis of an idea here. And the genesis of the idea is that I can take this real case and apply it to all the things that I know and have grown up with. He was very influenced, obviously, by the work of Wes Craven, um, you know, John Carpenter, everybody else, just, just like we all were. Except he said, you know what? If I don't write this script, somebody else is going to. And I think that's kind of true. So he takes everything and he goes to his friend and he's like, listen, I need money to go to Palm Springs and I'm just going to go bang this script out in, in the desert. He's like, okay. So they, <laughs> this dude, like he's got his car, which now is up for repo. So this is all he can do is figure out that he's going to bang out the script. And the easiest way he's going to do it is he's going to go to Palm Springs. He's going to get a big bottle of rum. And he's going to write the screenplay. He did. And he wrote it in 36 hours. Front to back, pretty much everything that you see in the film is in that script that he wrote in 36 hours. So it's a testament to the madness that Kevin Williamson was going through at this time. He finishes the script, uh, gives it to his agent. And his agent's like, holy shit, this is actually really good. (laughs) So the script goes to Paramount. The script goes to Universal. Uh, the script goes to Columbia. The script goes to Dimension, Miramax. Pretty soon, everybody in Hollywood has read this script. By the way, the name of it is Scary Movie. Everyone has read Scary Movie, and they're kind of in love with it. So in love with it, in fact, that a guy who is three months due on his rent, car up for repo, hasn't worked in six months, has the hottest fucking screenplay in all of Hollywood in, in 1995. And a bidding war ensues. Paramount wants it. Universal wants it. They're throwing serious numbers. Serious money at this guy. Serious money that he needs. You know, they're going to repo his fucking car. I don't know. I've been there. Finally, comes down to Dimension Films. And Bob Weinstein really shepherded this project. And we should always remember that because... Bob shepherded a lot of good films. I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, he basically said to him, he goes, they're going to give you more money. If you go to Paramount, they're definitely going to, they're going to give you what you want. He goes, but here's what I can give you. Complete freedom, complete artistic control and vision, and to make sure that this movie gets made the way that you want it. And he says, I know that Paramount's not going to give that to you. And, And that convinced him right there. He was going to have much, much more creative freedom. And this is where it gets crazy because he was so happy with selling the screenplay to Dimension, so excited that he decides, you know what? I'm going to celebrate, going to buy another bottle of rum. And he goes home and guess what? And like a week later, <laughs> he wrote um, Dawson's Creek. And it was just like the weirdest thing where it was like he was celebrating selling the first 
big property of his life, and then he would write the second biggest one right after that. You can't make this stuff up. It's 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 immeasurable. It's crazy. It's history. It really happened. Anything can happen. Life is just a series of strange lotteries. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you can win. And in this case, Williamson had won big. And it was crazy. So they basically were able to lock down the screenplay dimension. And it was a big deal. Because at that point, they were going to be putting the next Halloween film was going to be direct-to-video. The next Hellraiser film was going to be direct-to-video. To go along with their other direct-to-video franchise, Children of the Corn. And guess what, kids? If you remember the sequels to From Dusk Till Dawn, they all went direct-to-video as well. So being genre filmmakers and knowing what to sell, they needed a big horror hit. Everything was kind of in the toilet at that point except for From Dusk Till Dawn. And look, you weren't going to get Rodriguez back. You weren't going to get Quentin Tarantino. It just wasn't going to happen. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know why. But it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime type of deals. If you want to know more about if you want to know more about From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, Full Tilt Boogie is a fantastic documentary. We'll explain to you how the whole film was made. That's another episode. That's a whole other episode. Um, because all the stuff, the crazy stuff that uh, that went on with that movie, Jesus, it was just, it was like this crazy, perfect storm of directors and talent. Ooh, just, it was just crazy. So, the origins of Scary Movie. Dimension, they say, the guy that we got to get to make this movie is Wes Craven. And they offer it to him. And he says, it's a good script, but really not for me. And he turned it down. So Wes Craven's doing a signing at a horror convention like a few weeks later. And this kid comes up to him, precocious little like eight-year-old kid. He's like telling him, he's like, I've seen all your movies. Really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I've seen all your movies. And he's like, you don't make good movies anymore. You used to make good movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, Hills Have Eyes. Now you don't make good movies. So... It was kind of one of these things where it's Wes Craven as a, as a director. He's like kind of like, it's like he's being told by an eight-year-old that the serpent and the rainbow was great, but shocker wasn't. So he's saying to himself, shit, you know, it's like out of the mouths of babes. Kid ain't lying to you. He's telling you what it is. Kind of lit a candle under Wes Craven's ass. It's like, shit, I don't make good movies anymore. No, he didn't say that, but it's kind of what was going on. He gives Scary Movie a second look through, gives it another read. And he says, holy shit. He's like, this is the movie. He's like, this, this I can work with. This is something exciting. This is something new. And the reason that it was something new was that obviously if you've seen Scream, you know that it's very meta, which was very new at the time. Still meta was a very new thing. It's funny. It's self-referential. Uh, it happens in our universe, which is something that we didn't see. Um, Halloween is probably the quintessential modern horror film. If that is true, then the quintessential postmodern horror film is Scream. It redefines the genre, redefines it, changes the game, influences everything, everything that would come out after Scream, because that's what happened. Now we live in a post-Scream world. 
And the genius to Kevin Williamson's script was being very informed of what was going on in horror films. So I told you, the first part of what makes Scream work is that anybody can be the killer. You can be the killer. The second part, the real rub, and this is why Scream works, is one character, Randy Meeks, who, as you know, uh, Randy Meeks is portrayed by Jamie Kennedy. He is the audience surrogate in this film. There, that's, that's what he is. Um, he's the dorky guy that works at the video store. I worked at a video store. <laughs> it was one of my joys. Was And I worked at all of them. I worked at like West Coast Video, Blockbuster. I worked at all of them. And one of the, the basic joys of life and working in a video store is recommending movies to people, finding out what they're into, what they like to watch, maybe finding something new that they're going to love. There was consequence back there. This was not on a message board. This was not on social media. If you recommended something, that person was going to come back and be like, yo, this shit was whack. Shit was whack, bro. So you can't do that. You know, like you kind of, it's how you test your metal. You're kind of testing your metal in the geek world is, can I recommend stuff to other people? Will they like it? Will they dig it? Yeah. So Randy Meeks captured all that. He is the audience surrogate for a horror film, but he is also, he's Kevin Williamson because Kevin Williamson is Randy Meeks. He's a guy who is dorky, loves horror films, loves movies, knows everything about them. So, you know, that's kind of why Scream succeeds because we see it through the eyes of Randy Meeks and Randy Meeks is the audience, essentially. Um, he's very aware of all of the tropes. He knows all the actors and actresses. He knows the directors. He, you know, that's when you're a film nerd, all you can do is pride yourself over the fact of what you know. And it, it you, you never know enough. It's not a winnable war. You think you've seen every movie? You haven't. I haven't. No one has. There's always something new being made, and that's the thing. It never ends. You'll always have new movies to see. Um, you always have new experiences. And you just keep putting them in your little data bank of your brain. It's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's an insane thing, like, once you actually think about it. It's, it's a, a crazy thing. Scream is, is kind of a, a strange film because it comes out and nobody's into it, you know? Like, when it first came out, it was quiet. It was a bit of a sleeper. And what I'm trying to say with that was that that doesn't happen very often nowadays. A film doesn't come out and, like, uh, comes in number six and then cl slowly climbs to number one. Doesn't happen. It, it, it is a word-of-mouth film. Um, I think now when you have word of mouth films, it's a little bit different. I think because we live in a streaming world, um, you, it's very quick. The delivery as far as word of mouth is like, yo, you got to see this movie. You got to see Fear Street 1994. Whether the word is good or bad, it's out there in the ether. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. 
Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. Yeah, at this point, it was a weird time uh, for Kevin Williamson because not only had he done uh, Killing Mrs. Tingle, he made that film and it got picked up, I believe, by the David Geffen releasing company. Um, and they had some issues as far as legality with that film. Um, and the distribution was kind of screwed up. So Killing Mrs. Tingle was kind of at that point in limbo. You know, it was just sitting on a shelf because they couldn't distribute it. So it was still an unknown quantity if this scary movie was going to hit. One thing uh, that Wes Craven was afforded, they wanted to shoot the film in Vancouver. It would have saved $3 million. Uh, Craven knew that it had to be shot stateside. They ended up shooting it in Sonoma, California. Beautiful, beautiful town. Um, But... He basically went to Bob Weinstein and he said, we, we got to shoot this in the United States. It just won't look right if we shoot it in Vancouver. And he goes, look, Wes, it's $3 million to the budget. Like, if we add that, you know, there might not be a Wes Craven working on this movie. They basically told him that. And he's like, all right, this is the hill I'm going to die on. Well, then I wouldn't want to make that movie. So <laughs> he calls their bluff and they're like, okay, Wes, we'll give you the $3 million. You can shoot it in California. Um, one of the big parts of this film was the casting. And the casting was not easy, nor was it a walk in the park. Uh, initially for Randy Meeks, we had Jason Lee, who uh, he read for the part. And he was the front runner. They were like, ooh, Jason Lee. Jason Lee's going to do this. Uh, he ends up signing a deal does some other stuff, pivots right, left, out of that movie. So it comes down to two more actors, Breckenmeyer. I don't know Breckenmeyer. Breckenmeyer knew Wes Craven. He was in Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. He was the kid where uh, Freddy goes into the Nintendo game. Freddy's like, rad graphics. Yeah, it's one of the lesser entries, but I enjoy it. So Breckenmeyer had worked with Wes Craven before. Um, Wes Craven did not direct. That was Rachel Towley, but uh, tangentially had worked on another created by a Wes Craven entity. Um, Jamie Kennedy, Brecken Meyer. And basically Wes Craven told uh, Jamie Kennedy, he's like, okay, just improv some material as Randy. And he did it. And Wes Craven could not stop laughing. And he's like, that's it. This, this, this kid's the linchpin. He's the device. He's perfect. And, and that, was, that was obviously basically made Jamie Kennedy's career. Um, came down to two actors for Billy Loomis, Sidney Prescott's boyfriend. Um, came down to Skeet Ulrich, who Wes Craven really liked because it reminded him of Johnny Depp. And Johnny Depp had kind of been the actor that got away. He's, you know, he felt bad about killing him all those years ago in Nightmare on Elm Street. So, uh, comes down to two actors for Billy Loomis, Joaquin Phoenix and Skeet Ulrich. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the producers are like, whatever Wes Craven wants, like whatever, Wes, whoever you want. So, Joaquin Phoenix got turned down 
for the role. They said, thank you, sir. That was fantastic. And, you know, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You really do. So, I mean, you, you look, Joaquin Phoenix uh, just won an Oscar for Joker. Fantastic actor. Um, believe it or not, Gail Weathers. The part was, was in his mind, Wes Craven only had one person. And Kevin Williamson was like, oh, that's a great pick. Janine Garofalo. And he was like, we're going to get her. And it's going to be fantastic. So Wes sends the script over to Jeanine Garofalo. And she's like, oh, this, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do a horror movie. She's like, I love you, Wes Craven, but no, this is just not for me. What a fucking moron. Uh, (laughs) Jeanine Garofalo went on to wearing comfortable yoga pants at a frozen yogurt place near you. Um, So some other people went on to read for some interesting parts here. Alicia Witt, um, she's a really cute redhead, been in a bunch of unremarkable shit. Brittany Murphy, every, oh, Brittany Murphy, breaks my heart, Jesus Christ. I miss you, Brittany Murphy, you were dope. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart and Reese Witherspoon, all read for the part of Sydney Prescott. Uh, Reese Witherspoon's people turn deny that she read for the part, but it happened. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart, who had been hot off of Clarissa Explains It All. This would have been a good look for her. Would have been a good look for Brittany Murphy or Alicia Witt. But ultimately, Wes Craven trusted his instinct and went after the the very elusive young lady who at that point was on Party of Five, which was taking off and doing very well in the ratings. Uh, hmm. Nev Campbell ended up becoming our Sydney Prescott just very interesting to think about all these other possibilities some kind of else world other timeline another interesting thing um was rose mcgowan's character tatum riley was almost played by rebecca gayhart the girl from the noxima commercials and who would go on to be in scream too um very close but everybody loved her energy and uh Rose McGowan has said to this day that it's still her favorite movie that she ever got to make. Uh, You know, making it was just absolute magic with these people. And the weird thing about Matthew Lillard, who is Stu Mocker, um, it's just a weird thing of how he got hired. His girlfriend um, was at an unrelated audition. And the casting director, uh, Lisa Beach, saw Lillard in the hallway and asked him to audition for the part. It's like, hey, you know, like, whatever. And he nailed it. Like, it, it was one of those things, like, no, you know, like, they, there was no other famous people, like, early on when this went, when they were casting. Matthew Lillard was, boom, that was it. He got the part. And, like, Wes Craven was like, this, this is the guy. This is the guy. No, it's the guy. They were, like, dead set on Matthew Lillard. Um and, and that was that was crazy, too. Um, you know, it's funny, though. There's something that doesn't get talked about because I actually kind of went a little forward and I have to back up just a little bit. We talked about the Sidney Prescott role, okay? Talked about that, um, how it went to Nev Campbell. Well, initially, Drew Barrymore, she's attached to the product, to the product. <laughs> Whoops, Freudian slip there, Hollywood. IP's mother... Um, Drew Barrymore backed out of the Sidney Prescott role. That was originally supposed to be her role. And 
she had a couple of other offers on the table and decided, hey, I can't commit as much time. But she was pretty much working for scale. She had wanted to work with Wes Craven. So they basically had to recast and rewrite like literally almost a month or two before the film was going to be shot. Um, and this whole chain of events where, you know, there's got to be a rewrite. They've got to recast and re-engineer it. Um, Wes Craven basically almost walked because he was so frustrated about every turn of trying to get this film made. And little did he know, the battles were not over. They had just begun. Drew and Wes engineered a plan to keep her in the film and then pull a rope-a-dope on the audience um, in conjunction with a dynamite marketing plan that no one would guess. See, that's like the really interesting thing is that Drew Barrymore and Wes Craven hatch this plan, which becomes a genius plan. They tell Kevin Williamson, then they, they tell Bob Weinstein, and he's, that's genius. We put her all over the posters, front and center. You think she's the main character. She's a big star, very hot right now, and we kill her in the first 10 minutes. And it was fucking brilliant. And I will tell you, Scream opened in Cannes. Uh, that's right, that Cannes, the film festival. And when it was screened, people went nuts over it. They loved it. They were like standing and cheering. It was very well received. I just, I need to put that in there because um, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of nice to know that this all paid off, but there was kind of an organic issue that was here and they turned it into a successful situation where it was Drew Barrymore couldn't do this movie. She literally could only be on set like X amount of days. So it's kind of like turning something that's shitty into something good. And I think that that was a lot of the success of Scream was because they marketed it so heavily on Drew Barrymore and then instantly killed her within the first reel. And that's genius. Like that's, we really never saw that where somebody would market a film with an actor. Boom, you know, first five, 10 minutes, just kill him off. So that was, that also, I don't know. I'm going to say that was another one of the linchpins of the Scream film. You know, it's, it's, it's not just one thing. It's all these different things uh, put together. Uh, so, so this really works. Okay, now, now they're cooking with gas. They've rewritten the role. They start shooting the movie. And, oh, wait, we forgot one person. That's right. Janine Garofalo turned down the role of Gail Weathers. But... Courtney Cox ultimately took the role. Now, hear me out. This is kind of crazy. Janine Garofalo turned down the role of Gail Weathers, but somebody else wanted the part really bad, like really bad. And it was Courtney Cox, who was on this huge TV show. Probably one of the biggest things in the 90s was Friends. And she read the script and she said, holy shit, this is a good script. This is, I love this character. I want to do this. So she basically she told the people at Friends, she put Scream above everything. And there was somebody else that was there. Oh, you probably know him as Deputy Dewey. Oh, man. Beloved character, also a big part of the franchise. Dewey is, I was going to say it was Dewey Cox. Dewey is the heart and soul of the uh, Scream, the, the first film, the whole franchise. 
And that's David Arquette. And originally, David Arquette had read for Billy Loomis. And then he, he, he read for um, the Randy Meeks part. And Wes kept saying, he's like, he's like, you're perfect. Like, why don't you just be one of the kids? And he's like, well, Wes, I read the screenplay and I really like Dewey because I really think I could do this. And he goes, but you look really young. He's like, I was going to cast you as a high school student. He's like, so he goes, let me grow, like, let me grow some facial hair. He comes back with, with the mustache and he combs over his hair and he's like, okay, it's like, you're the deputy. So now we've got the whole cast. We've got everybody. We've got the, the plan, the scheme, as it were, to put Drew Barrymore as the, the front-facing star, and we're going to kill her. So they shoot this movie. It's over a three-, four-month period, and uh, they're shooting in Sonoma, California. Beautiful. It's wine country. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, the last, the last act of this film, almost 42 minutes of this film take place. The third act is the night scene where uh, we're all at Sydney's house and everybody's watching horror movies. I don't remember if it was Sydney's house. It was somebody's house. It really doesn't matter. It's some suburban thing. That's not why you're here. Okay. It's been a while. Good to get back to that. They shot for 37 nights straight. And, um, there was a there were t-shirts made saying I survived scene 118 and uh, it, it was referring to the night shoot that went on for close to it was 37 nights and by the time they started getting into the 15th day of shooting the third act of scream the cast and everybody started to get kind of delirious because they weren't used to staying up all night then going to sleep um and it just got worse and worse. And they were just so happy when it was done. It was hard to get through that because everybody was forced to be nocturnal. And people like Courtney Cox had, you know, they had obligations to friends and things like that. So they couldn't be on set. And it was a constant war just to get through like this last third act of the film to make it all work. Uh, initially, Dewey was going to be murdered. He was going to die. And then Wes Craven was like, oh, man. He's like, I really like Dewey. So he shot, uh, he shot another sequence with him just in case, just for insurance. Because you can't kill Dewey. He's kind of, like I said, he's the, he's the heart of the film. You know, if, if uh, Jamie Kennedy is Randy Meeks, is the audience surrogate, you know, he's the heart. He really is. and makes it work. You know, I think this is largely a series, this is a film that works because it has a great cast and how that cast interacts with each other and plays off uh, each other. And when you're doing a film, let alone a slasher film, let alone <laughs> the quintessential postmodern uh, film that changes everything from here on out, um, you have the ensemble and you need the ensemble. Um, because, you know, it's like they say, like, you know, your strongest player is, your, you know, your weakest link. You have to have something that's holding this all together. And I think that it was a great script and I think it was a great cast. And because of that stroke of genius, it, it, it's firing on all cylinders. Uh, it works. Little did Wes Craven know that they, they finished shooting and everything worked. Okay, all right, we're going to get this film out for 
December. We, we're going to edit it all summer and fall, and we're going to get it together and get it out there in theaters. Nope. <laughs> because the real battle was just starting with the MPAA. Now, it's funny that we live in this world where everything is streaming and it's in the cloud and whatnot, and ratings really don't matter. You can get an unrated film out there and distribute it. But in 1996, the way you made money were brick-and-mortar theater chains. You still make money that way, but that was, that was how you distributed films. So they had to play wide. Nine times this film got sent back to Wes Craven, and they said, you got to trim this, you got to trim that. Now, initially, one of the things that they didn't like was uh, the way the boyfriend is killed. Howard Berger did the effects from KNB, special effects. Uh, the boyfriend is gutted from groin to throat. And there was just, uh, he was disemboweled, but ultimately what happened was the guts came spilling out. And that wasn't on purpose. It was just, it was going to happen because of gravity and the way it was looking. The MPAA didn't like that. So they, they fought with that whole way of like, how is the boyfriend in the backyard going to get killed? So they had to keep trimming that and, and trying to make it work. Ultimately, the thing they had the biggest problem with, and Wes Craven was not going to change it, was in the beginning when you see Drew Barrymore get stabbed by Ghostface, the MPA did not like that. that. That initial plunge when Ghostface comes up behind her and you see the blade go right into her chest. They flip shit over that. So Wes Craven gives him the old soft shoe and he's like, uh, look, it's a very important shot. He's like, it's my favorite shot in the whole film. It's so important to the film. I only shot it from one angle and it's all the footage I have. Now, that was not true. That was Wes Craven had 20 angles. He, he did that because he was like, uh, he's like, okay, again, Wes Craven, he takes chances. This is Hill. He's going to die on it. He calls their bluff and they're like, okay, fine. <laughs> you can keep that in there. So by the ninth time they had wanted to release Scream um, in the fall for Halloween. You know, that's when you release horror movies. It's a good time. It fits the whole holiday. And nobody would be more overjoyed than Kevin Williamson, huge fan of Halloween. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And the reason it wasn't going to happen was because the MPAA kept telling them, you're getting an NC-17, and this is not going to come out as an R-rated film. Finally, Bob Weinstein goes to them. And he stands before the people who are about to review the film for the 10th time, 10th time's the charm, kids, and he says, please, you're going to watch this film, view it as satire, View it as the airplane or naked gun of horror films. Now, whatever he did, that kind of does make sense. Oh, this is a satire. Let's be honest. Most of the MPAA is people who were retired. You know, this was at a time when Jack Valenti was at the, the height of his powers, the president of the MPAA at the time. And it was kind of after the cycle of all the slasher films in the 80s where it became harder for mainstream producers to make really violent content, let alone horror content, that they were going to be hip to. You know, they just didn't want it. Times had changed. And this is the way we were going to do it or we weren't going to do it. And you're going to go home with your NC-17. NC-17, ultimately, 
this 10th time the film goes through and they say, here's an R rating. We're done with it. We, we don't <laughs> just don't want to do this. This is, you know, it's like, so Bob Weinstein, he, he went to bat for that film because I think that the NC 17 at that point in time would have just been the kiss of death. So they're finally ready to get this movie out long after Halloween. And they figure at this point, I don't know what, what kind of business this film is going to do. Opens up with the $4 million the second week. Second week turns around after the, the opening. It opened in fourth place. Opens in fourth place, makes $4.3 million. And they're kind of like, okay, I don't know. This, you know, like, this might not work. The power of word of mouth. Second week, no drop off. Makes the same amount of money, 4.3. Stays at number four. Third week, climbs up to third place. Fourth week, climbs up to second place. Fifth week in release, number one. Movie ends up making $100 million. It's actually 103 But it makes $103 million. And it is a huge hit. And just like the night that I saw it, I mean... The proof is in the pudding, right? Like, it's a great film. It works. Ostensibly, for everything better or worse, the whole film works. Word of mouth was crazy back then. Did, you know, the internet was really not a a known quantity. You know, people weren't using the internet. They weren't getting on message boards talking about this bullshit. So it was really one of those deals where this happened organically. And I think that's what makes it so special is that people saw it when I saw it. I said, dude, because even when I saw it that first night, I was like, oh, my God, that was like, you know, I'm with this girl. Was that good? That was really good, wasn't it? And she's like, yeah, that was a really good film. And I knew I just kind of knew from that first night. I'm like, this is going to be a big movie. I mean, look, people have written Wes Craven off a long time ago. And this movie really reinvigorated his career. It also made him the $100 million man. And so Wes Craven's back. Never went away. Uh, Arguably the biggest hit of his career, Scream, in a mainstream sense. You know, Freddy is what it is, but Freddy went on was more, you know, franchise, episodic. But Scream really was one of Wes Craven's masterpieces. And Kevin Williamson, too. This movie... Scream defines, redefines the genre, and it's completely self-aware of what's happening, and no one else had done that. So now, if you make a horror movie, it it basically, especially with Randy Meeks, he points out, he's like, and this is why you have to do this, these are all the tropes. Now that you've thrown the tropes into into the audience's face, like, oh, if you go have sex, you know, you're going to die. Um, (laughs) don't ever say I'll be right back, you know? So now that you've thrown the tropes at them, they can't take anything seriously. So it becomes now, which is really cool how this movie influences the other films that come out after it is, oh shit, now we have to think about how are we going to pull this off? In the wake of this film, you get, I mean, okay, I, I know what you did last summer. You get Urban Legend. You get these other films that are very much in the mold of Scream, um, to the point of the marketing, the way they're written, because ultimately it's not just a horror film. It's a really good whodunit. It's still to this day when they, okay, I want to say last year during the height of the pandemic, 
um, We Hate Movies had a drive-in, and they did a double feature of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, and opened with Scream. And I got to tell you, folks, I saw this movie a year ago uh, in August at a drive-in during the pandemic. People, including myself, hollering, yelling, cheering, Scream fucking plays. I just saw it in front of an audience, you know, almost two decades after its initial release. And it's like people say, oh, that song slaps. This motherfucker slaps. Like, it works. It, that place was turned up. Like, even when Jason Lives went on, it's, Jason Lives is a fun movie. I enjoy it. But that energy that Scream puts out there with the soundtrack, Marco Beltrami, who scored this film, this was his first movie that he ever scored. Um you know, it's just, it's insane. Like, because then he basically, he built his whole career off of scoring this movie. You know, it, it, it put him in a really advantageous uh, place. We talked about earlier Fear Street 1994, which, like I said, very heavily relies on the Scream formula, where they had put Maya Hawk uh, on the poster put her front and center and marketed the film like, oh, she's the lead. She's the ingenue. And they killed her off right away. That, you know, and that's, that's kind of a nod to Scream, obviously. Uh, Fear Street wears those influences on its sleeve, for better or worse. So, I mean, now in 2021, slashers are back. We've got a new Scream movie coming out in January. We've got Halloween Kills. Hell, even our buddy Candyman is back. We just had another Purge movie. Everybody's back. It's a big old party. But more importantly, the slasher movie is back. Okay? Fear Street proved that. The new Halloween Kills trailer proved that. Slasher movies are back, and they're in a big way. Uh, one of my favorite movies from last year, Christopher Landon's Freaky. Freaky was a great movie. Love that Vince Vaughn. Uh, it works. The slasher movie is here, kids. It is no joke. It's back. It's back in style. It's back in fashion. Just like Ryan Johnson brought back the whodunit with Knives Out. We're here. We want to see people get killed. We want to see mystery. We want excitement. We want fun. We want to eat popcorn and shove it in our faces and enjoy. Uh, it's the hedonistic rites of passage. As anyone who gets to go to the Mecca of Cinema, which is a movie theater, and you get to shove the candy in your face, you're high off your edibles, <laughs> you're in a fetal position. Um, Scream's influence and legacy can be felt everywhere. Absolutely. There is no unequivocal doubt to this day that this film uh, wasn't influential to Knives Out, wasn't influential to Fear Street. So everything that's kind of going on it's felt. It's it's all there. All those pieces are there. Uh, leads to Halloween H2O, which allows um, Jamie Lee Curtis to take another paycheck and square off against her then brother, Michael Myers. Uh, I, I, I don't think I can devote a whole episode to it. Maybe I can. I don't know. We'll see how desperate I get down the line. But uh, that ending with H2O... When Jamie Lee Curtis lops off Michael Myers' head, woof, that shit. People, st even I was like, people were like, they had, they had the balls to do it. They cut his head off. But H2O, Halloween, um, 20 years later, is, is a Dimension film and would not have been made without um, Scream. 
So it's crazy because Kevin Williamson got into this whole game because he loved Halloween. And then it came back because he loved Halloween, because he loved Halloween so much and made Scream. So you kind of see that there is a rhythm, um, that there is kind of a circle with that, that he influenced the genre enough to resurrect one of his favorite uh, horror heroes, which is, uh, Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis. So really, uh, you can't ask for much more than that when you, you're kind of the beginning and end of what's going on in the genre at that point in time. Well, things get even more interesting. When Kevin Williamson submitted the screenplay, in the back of the screenplay, he put a five-page treatment for a film called Scream 2. Now, that film would shoot under the title Scream, the sequel, but then ultimately went back under that title of Scream 2. But that's another story for another time. What do you think? I don't know. Well, my name is Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering. Don't forget, folks, don't go to sleep until you have something worth dreaming about. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.